If Reality Check Radio enriches your day and life, support us to keep bringing you the content, voices, perspectives, and dose of reality you won't get anywhere else. Visit www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate. So, Penny Marie, welcome to Real People in the Psychotherapist Chair. I guess one of the things that listeners might wonder is, why are you doing this? Why would you even let yourself come onto radio and talk about yourself like this? What what motivates you to do this? Well, it's a little bit terrifying because I've never been in a psychotherapist chair. Maybe I'm thinking I'm going to get an hour of free therapy. I don't know. But I think what I've learned is um, I've really I've learned in the last few years that qualifications are learned by living and Actually, how we get to help other people is by sharing our own personal stories and the hope that that resonates with and helps one or two other people. Um, and so that's why I put my hand up for things like this when I get invited is genuinely because I just hope that it helps someone else. Well, I'm very grateful. Um, this show couldn't survive without Kiwis willing to be uh, open and share just about our lives, you know. And I think for me behind this program is a chance to Find out what unites us and what we share rather than focus on what is different. And to share our common experiences brings us back to our humanity. So, yeah, that's great. And I really appreciate you sharing. So let's kick off. Why don't you give the listeners a thumbnail sketch of your current life? Tell them about your life right now. What does your life consist of? My life right now. Um, so I live in a home with my dog and I am very connected to nature. Um, so I get out into nature a couple of times a day. I have a dog that needs a lot of exercise. So that makes me do it rain or shine. Um, I plug in when I'm in nature. That's how I receive my energy. And my days consist of a lot of conversations, um, many of them online or on the phone. And I just kind of waft around trying to bring a resonance to the world <laughs> in, a, in a kind of sometimes quite undefined way. So sometimes it's in one-on-one -on -one conversations and sometimes it's in content that I create um, and or things that I write. But it's it's quite sort of undefined because I'm learning to just be me. And I've been a person who is a self-proclaimed workaholic and I've also worked in brand man management and comms. And so what I've looked back over my life and gone, my whole life has been I've attached to myself to a brand or a job or a role, be it the role of mother, the role of wife, the role of my job title. And so it's a big unpack of like, but who am I? And then with who am I, what do I put my energy into that doesn't need to have a, a brand associated with it? So it's a it's actually quite hard for me to find what I do in a day because I just kind of often see what shows up. I have a list of things most days that I want to do and I get to the end of the day and I'd be lucky to have done one of them because things come in. Isn't that a strange way to explain my day? And I'm a person too who really likes structure and is quite task orientated. So I'm trying to, maybe I flip too much the other way, but I need to find some balance so that I achieve. Well, Penny, you make yourself sound like someone who's just swanning around her house doing nothing. And I know that isn't true. So tell us no. a little bit about how you're interfacing with the rest of the world and what you're working with and what you're doing. I know doing isn't all that we're about here, but I think to get a, a handle on who they're listening to, it'd be great. 
Yeah, so I probably need to just step back um, to when it all catastrophically, my old life catastrophically ended in a moment because up until that point in 2021, I was um, a really busy full-time working mum. I had teenage boys. I was very invested in their sport and I did everything for them. And so then for me, it was around sort of August 2021 when the blinkers came off really and I really saw what was going on in the world. I just could not stomach participating in it anymore. And so I, you know, walked from my career and I just went in that moment, all the skills, all the people that I've met, all the experiences that I've had are for this now time. So again, it's quite hard to define, but what I really did was um, really immersed myself in, at that time, I guess you call it the freedom movement. It's the people that resisted getting vaccinations and could see the mandates were coming in. So um, I needed to re-find a network of people. And what fell out of that was um, I got quite involved in local meetings around the sort of Horaki Plains, Thames, Coromandel area. We had a group called the Waikato Freedom Network and um, also VFF was really involved. And I just kind of immersed myself and I was gifted, like divinely gifted the ability to speak and I'd always been terrified of public speaking but I just was getting these downloads and people would come up to me and say what are are you like an orator are you a preacher what are you and I was like well something's going on so I kind of just got involved in a really weird community way of just um, helping sort of facilitate meetings or speaking or whatever and I created a, a website called the people's news because I really felt that the power of people's story was the most powerful thing that we can bring to the world to help one another um so that was kind of how everything changed a few years ago but I was just self-driven like I didn't join an organization or anything like that and that's kind of continued and so I I've just been just involved in all sorts of different ways and then about this time last year I just got challenged to really become my own uh, get into media and be truth media on on the face of what we're battling so I kind of do media, I write, um, I always thought I'd just write because I, I love writing, but then I ended up starting to do video interviews and things, so getting in front of the camera for the first time, so different to what I ever thought my life would be. And then, yeah, in May last year, I did a speech to my school board, which was, I think I was the first person in New Zealand to do it, and I recorded it, and then my life profoundly changed again because I'd tapped into something um, and putting an authentic message out um, to help parents. And then I got asked to go and speak. And then the fallout from that was creating an organization called Let Kids Be Kids. So I I kind of spend most of my day, you know, speaking and writing and and helping people one-on-one. But the channel by which that is put out is I have my own Substack and um, Rumble and things like that under Penny Marie and Pendulum. And then I also have the Let Kids Be Kids Substack website and social media. And I spend more time on Twitter than I ever thought that I would, which is very strange. But it all comes back to it's about connection and it's about observing people's behavior and it's about finding a a resonance or a frequency that can actually um, assist people to help themselves. And whatever that I do, I always come back to that core of like shifting the consciousness and actually empowering people to take their own power back. So everything for me is about helping other people to be part of this collective consciousness shift. So whilst we had um, quite a number of parents who were quite awake to the whole uh, vaccine mandate side of it, um, and so I assumed that they were part of the, um, they understood about the kids stuff, um, not many of them showed up to support me in the meeting, but 
I knew that there were people that were awake to kind of the bigger agenda. The other thing too was that I had come off social media. I'd come off Facebook by then. So as far as being like gaslit, I just decided for my own mental health back in sort of September 21. So I'd sent information out and written posts to try and get people to think. But after a little while, I was like, I'm done fishing. Like I kind of was going fishing to see who was willing to have the conversation. But for me personally, where I was headed, I needed to switch that off and not spend time worrying about the gaslighters and just get on with finding the people that were that we could help. So yeah, I'd already been kind of excommunicated, if you like, from my old world as far as I couldn't show up to my kids' sport. So I wasn't seeing those people anymore. So yeah, I just didn't let those people sort of affect me. Mm. Yeah, tough time and a big challenge for anyone to go through. Um, and I think what you've told us is that even before all this happened, you were, as a child, a, a youngster, you, after school, you, you already knew that communication was going to be your thing. Because it seems to me, I would describe you as possibly a, the new breed of journalism that is coming out. I, I don't want to label you, but you seem to be one of the new journalists, the people that are willing to actually do proper research. I've visited your Substack, and people can visit that at Penny Marie. Dot NZ, is that right? Penny, Penny right. Marie. Yeah. M R M A R I E Marie. Yep. Penny Marie. Dot NZ. Yep. Yep. That's a simple one to remember. I've looked on that, and and you write beautifully, as and you talk very well about you're very eloquent. So it seems like that was all always part of you. For this person that's shy about public speaking, it seems quite a quite a interesting talent to have when you don't you know you don't see yourself and didn't see yourself as a public speaker. Yeah, well, I'll share a bit of background on that because um, so it's quite funny. My dad was um, he came out here as a ten pound pom in nineteen seventy because he was a printer. And actually, I was listening to your interview with Linda Wharton, and she was mentioning that when her family came out a few years earlier than that, her dad came out as far as part of the defence force. But she said at that point, the only other people that were coming out were um, TV technicians. And I thought, gosh, a few years later, my dad followed who was a printer. So they were setting up their propaganda machine back right back then. And my, that's why I'm here. So my dad was a printer. My sister um, she actually was a journalist. She went to journalism school. I went and did marketing. And then my mum, for a time, well, she worked with my dad in his printing business, but she also did accounts at a newspaper. So <laughs> I actually used to joke that between the four of us, we could run a paper. But I wasn't the I wasn't the journalist. Isn't that funny? And so, um, so I kind of, I guess, I've realised that I have it in me and uh, to communicate. But what's happened? Like when I sort of had my big awakening, I realised like a lot of people is every skill, every experience, every job that I've had, every connection that I've made is for this now moment. So let's get on with it. And really, the big work for me was my inner work. Am I brave enough? Am I confident enough? Do I trust myself? Do I trust my instinct enough? So the, the biggest journey that I've been on in the last few years has actually been that stuff, um, not kind of honing my technical skills. Like I know how to find my way around things like Substack and all the technical stuff really easily. So it's like, well, I've got these skills. Have I got the confidence to bring it in? And then the other side of it being observing the way that communication is so the propaganda, which we thought was media, which is propaganda, and then actually watching what it is on the on the truther side of it too. The only way that we can have integrity going forward is to make sure that we're fact-based, we're not reactive, that we have solid data, um, or that we or that we have um, first-hand accounts. 
And as I can see more and more the chasm, but also the the disruption amongst our own trying to get the truth out where people are reactive, inflammatory. I mean, a great example last week of that um, Davos um, one that came out, which was satire by that guy, Damon Imani. And, and we I spent a lot of time talking about this because he he's a satirist. Like he created it using a green screen, but it was so well done that everybody just, a lot of people wondered if it was true and shared it anyway or said that it was true without fact-checking. But I fact-checked and it took me about a minute to find out that that was absolutely satire. So very clever and um, a very useful tool. But the issue with that is that most people thought that it was real and their truth is, and so they're actually undermining their own reputation by passing something they thought is truth that isn't. So I think for me, I've just become really attuned to um, how we need to be better at what we do and also how the way that we communicate needs to to strengthen the receiver of the information on how they can help themselves rather than we keep looking outside of ourselves for the solution. So that seems to be the little niche that has been created just through observation, through observation and curiosity and trying not to judge and just sitting back and watching. The thing about facts and checking for ourselves, not giving even the authority to check on authorities to the authorities so they pay for fact checkers, which is a bit like asking turkeys if they want to vote for Christmas or not. Once upon a time, in a galaxy far, far away, there used to be journalists who had real integrity. And they used to do, they used to check their sources. They used to double check them. They used to find two or three, I think, confirmatory uh, sources for anything they said. There was a standard in journalism. So guess what happened? We stopped checking ourselves. We trusted that the others, other people would do the checking for us. And your example of the young man who basically appeared to stand up at Davos and give uh, Klaus Schwab... The speech we all wanted to say. <laughs> everything that every truther would have loved to say the problem with that was that that was really playing into the wishes and desires of so many people. So many people would love for someone to just stand up there and say, you know what, just go away. We're not interested in you. You're just psychotic. And, of course, it was a manipulation of the mind. Well, we want it so much that we make it, truth and and just to go back to what you were saying about quality journalism and I mean obviously it was my sister that was into journalism not me but you're you're in it because you receive it I've been talking to more and more um or I know journalists who used to be in there when there was ethics around it and they bumped out or they got bumped out because back then um you know years ago they've been planning this they got rid of anyone who um wouldn't put up with their work being doctored um so they couldn't actually they were told what to talk about and what not to talk about so this control has been going on for a really long time which which again it's like what they did recently with all the medical profession if you have a dissenting voice you're out so then you don't get to be in there from the inside doing the work so we have to recreate ethical media from the outside in and um and just and I just go you know there's not even any point I don't really even go online gaslighting and, and shooting them down so much because I think it's collapsing on itself what I want to be busy doing is creating an ethical reliable truthful um next phase with anyone out there who who really wants to do that 
Mm. Well, and I think, you know, what was so impressive for me was how rigorous you were in your search for true information about a whole range of subjects, actually, not just this one. Um, where do you think you got your own moral or ethical standard that truth actually matters? Where do you think you got that from? Well, it's funny too because you keep going. I keep going back to the psychology of everything. I never was. I never saw myself as a researcher because I didn't have a qualification. But when the twenty twenty one thing hit, and um, and it was when they went for the children. It was when they said it was particularly when that was already weird. But twelve to fifteen year olds could suddenly go and get a a jab without parental knowledge, but yet they couldn't even go on a school trip. Something was fundamentally wrong. And so I went researching and I'm looking at everything going, surely not. And then I thought, oh, I'm not a researcher. And then I thought, no, I am a researcher because I'm researching. So that actually gives me the right to say that for my personal sake, I am doing my own research. And so we've lost our confidence in ourselves to think that if we find information that's against the mainstream, that it's that it's even right. Um, and that for me had started a couple of years prior. I think it was about 2018, 2019, when I had a health, uh, you know, been diagnosed with a health condition. And the answer that the masses or the, the diagnostics was giving me was quite extreme. It was to um, have, a, have a preventative mastectomy. Um, was I spent a couple of years actually going and asking um, pr professionals all around the place to be sure that I knew that I knew that I knew that I knew before I made a decision about my body. And for me, that was the, the very first time where I cared enough about something to go off piste from the mainstream narrative because nobody could make this decision except for me. And by oath, I'd better know what I'm doing before I did it. So I think it always comes back to me about what's your personal journey because you can overlay that into any other situation. What's the what's the personal pain point that you came to in your life where you decided to go digging for something and actually had to up your brave and find your confidence within yourself rather than looking outside of yourself because the decision about your life sits with you. You can't keep blaming everybody else. Mm. Um, your health story sounds like a very interesting story. I wonder if you'd be willing to share uh, what you learned in that journey. Yeah, so I was um, told by a family member that I had the breast cancer gene, so BRCA, which was made famous by Angelina Jolie. And she had BRCA1, she had her breasts removed and all of that. And so I was told that it was in my family line. And so I went and got the test and I, it came back that it was positive. And at the time for me, I was going through my first marriage breakup and all that. So I didn't, I was just like, I'm not even going to focus on that particular trauma right now. So I, I looped back around to it a few years later and um, started doing my research because I was getting a lot of pressure to have a, a, to have a mastectomy to whip off perfectly healthy breasts. And it's the fear narrative again, and there was only really one way um, that they were talking about it, but I just couldn't deal. So I actually went on my own personal health journey and went, how, am I, how can I possibly make my body as toxic as possible to cancer? What can I, what can I do for myself that I can control? So it did um, make me own up to my health journey and my own responsibility, not being a victim, not blaming anybody. Um, but moving on from that and knowing sort of, and I'm not a medical expert by any means, but I just look when it's important to me and understanding now a few years down the track further that there's a potential that that whole cancer industry is a fraud. And that's really confronting for me. Um, I didn't have my breasts off. I, I had my ovaries removed um, because of my high risk of cancer. Family members have had their breasts removed and 
they were perfectly healthy. And so I actually want to one day have a really deep dive into this whole cancer medical pharma situation because that's a conversation we all need to have because cancer, more than anything else in everybody's lives, touches us in one way or another, either personally or through a loved one. I think it's the next big thing. But before we just jump on the pharma thing and the narrative thing and because the cancer vaccine's coming out and all these different things, is we need to stop and we need to go back to personal responsibility rather than government directive. So the lessons for people like me and you who are in this media space, the work is really in encouraging people to find their self-sovereignty and their self-determination at a really, really granular level so that when those big things hit, they have the confidence to, to trust their intuition, to trust their discernment, and to, and to be brave enough to reach out to people around them or within the natural health network or within alternative methods that they don't just run off to the doctor because a lot of the times it's in their best interest to look a little bit deeper. So if we can encourage them now, if we can encourage more and more people to find their inner confidence and their inner strength and their inner voice now, then when the next shit show hits us, we might be better equipped. I honestly feel like that's what people like me are here to do. We're here to equip other people. I'm not here to get rich. I'm not here to have a big brand. I'm not here to do anything other than help other people to help themselves. Yes, and not so long ago I was interviewing Linda Wharton and her work in supporting people in finding their own pathway to health, the, the work of uh, New Zealand doctors speaking out with science. Um, there's however bad things have got, what is to be really uh, celebrated, I think, is the fact that suddenly everywhere we're seeing a new attitude growing towards health. And I, I, I look around me, I mean, where I live, Wanaka is full of some very, very healthy people. And I see them doing healthy things. Notice I don't include myself in that, but I'll come to that later. But sometimes I see people running out early in the morning at six o'clock, furiously running. And sometimes it looks to me like they're running, that something's chasing them. And I sometimes look at them and I think what's chasing them is fear. And fear of the big C is a massive terror that has been used on our population, right? It was my biggest fear. If you ever asked me 15 years ago, what's your biggest fear? My biggest fear was breast cancer because I knew it was in my family. So I sort of had this unnamed, unspoken fear of breast cancer. Not even the death of it, but the going through it and then the, the chemo and all of that. When I found out that I had BRCA and who knows what that is, you know, a genetic thing, I actually felt really empowered because I could kind of put it in a container and go, that's what that is. Because before that, it had just been this like big dark cloud. And then I went, oh, that's what it is. So what am I going to do about it now that I know for sure? So I guess that goes back to, you know, evidence-based, evidence-based fear I had, which it wasn't fear. I actually, well, I put it on the side burner for a while and I procrastinated. Um, but then I thought, and they actually created a um, support group for people and it was called um, the gift of knowledge, I think what it was. And it really was that it was the gift that knowledge gives you because ignorance is, you know, not going to help anybody, but knowledge helps. So I kind of learned then like, well, I, I get to choose how much I want to know rather than just put my head in the sand and be ignorant. And I think that's the switch point is, 
you know, it comes with confidence of going, or it comes with a crisis. I mean, someone has a health crisis usually, or, a, you know, a, a psychological crisis when they hit rock bottom and they go seeking for answers that aren't just popping along to the doctor and doing what they say and, and having those pills or uh, having whatever surgery they suggest without actually thinking. Like we're not automons, you know, we're souls with physical bodies on a journey and we're in control of them. We give our power away. We give our power away to everybody else and we rattle around with pills that someone's told us but we don't listen to our intuition. And so this shift to um, the shift to taking responsibility for your health, I think is the most exciting part of what is coming out of this. And I just want to go back to what you're saying about running. I used to run and I'm not a runner. I was terrible at it, but I used to run. And I remember one time I, I texted my, my girlfriend and said, I just ran from home down into town, which is like nine Ks away. And she just comes to me and goes, who's chasing you? She just couldn't understand why on earth I would do that. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah no but i think the health gig that many people are on can very easily become a fear gig in that we're doing all these health things for what is it that we don't trust that we're made okay mm. is it that we, we don't trust that what a human being is is somehow divine is somehow mm full of spirit and the desperation that goes on around diet and running and health. You know, if all of that is about fear, uh, about fear of, I mean, I, listen, I know a serious amount of exercise every day is vital. That's because we were born to move and do things. But mm -hmm. what I'm saying here is that if all our actions are driven by fear, then they feed the fear. And the one thing we know is that the thing that we're most afraid of will almost certainly happen. <laughs> That's right. And fear is a, a few, like I, I tend to look at it in frequencies now, like fear is a really low vibrational frequency. So if the purpose of what you're doing or what you're trying to outrun is fear, it ain't ever going to make you a happier, healthier person. But if you do it, like when I exercise, I go in the bush because the bush feeds my feeds my soul, you know, and I can step out of the busyness of my head and I can observe the wonder of nature. So I've gone to like, I exercise because it connects me, not because I need to sweat a certain amount of buckets a day. I used to do that, but you know, it's like, I, I guess the question is more like, what's your driver? If you run because you just love how that feels in your body, then run, 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 run. But if you're running because you're worried about, you know, the cake that you ate last night, that's fear. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And, you know, psychologically, we give it a name. I mean, if you, for example, the example of eating, if you eat a lot and then you have to half kill yourself to punish yourself for it afterwards or purge yourself of it, mm. you know, we call that bulimia. That has a name. It's a psychological condition. And it seems to me that what everyone who's listening is living through at this moment is a phenomenal attack, and largely coming, I think, through media, but a phenomenal attack on the simple idea that we are made beautiful, yeah. that we are made amazing, that we are made full of compassion, and that if humans are just, if I just want to say, leave everyone alone. Just let us be the beautiful human beings that we were created as, you know? And I yeah. see this hard work going on. I mean, like you, I, I exercise for joy. 
And I used to be, a, a in England, I used to be a fell runner. I used to run the mountains. And there was nothing more spiritual to me than running through mud up a hill on a wet, rainy day in the elements. That somehow I felt I was exposed. I was raw. I was naked before God, mm. naked before God's creation. And I was okay with that. It's like something about the spirituality of exercise. But, you know, you you don't see it. They'll probably start it. Someone will make a brand of it, say, spiritual exercise, and they'll get lots of money from branding it. It's <laughs> crazy. You don't, you don't see or hear of people saying, you know, you should get out for your spirit. Well, you do now, but you didn't used to. You know, nowadays, a lot of people are saying, do you know what? be in nature yeah. one of the most important things for life is to connect with the glory of creation and to be fed by that there's nobody that i know on this side of kind of awakening to really who we are that doesn't speak of the importance of nature and actually as you were talking i'm picturing in my head you know when you go past one of those um 24-hour gyms or the gyms and they've got the big window and there's always these people they're beaten out on their treadmills and i'm just like dude, just go outside and do it. Like go outside and just go for a run to the top of the hill next to you or or go down the go down the path. You know, it's exercise for the sake of exercise without actually realizing the joy that um, being out in nature and moving in that way could give you. So it's just it's just making little shifts, you know, to get outside more or whatever. But yeah, I mean, I know everyone's different, but we're so interconnected with nature. And I, I sort of feel, and particularly with people in built-up areas and these 15-minute cities coming, they're just doing everything they can to put us into concrete jungles. So we've got to keep doing the opposite of what they're trying to do. So the more that they want us to do that, buck the trend and go, well, if they want us to do that, then probably the thing that's healthiest is the opposite, which is to make sure I go to the beach or the bush regularly. So I don't think that you answered my question around where... Did you get your moral, ethical code around truth, around doing your own research? Where did all that come from in your life? Where did you yes. learn? Where did I learn it? I I actually, it's an interesting one because I, I, I can't say I grew up in a Christian household. My mum became a Christian probably when I was about 12, but she was the only one in the house. So my parents have... Um, they were good people. Like my, my parents were teetotalers. My dad's version of drinking was a lager shandy if he went out, you know, like, um, so as far as like being brought up in a household with morals and ethics, you know, I didn't grow up around abuse. I grew up around, you know, a normal family unit, although there was, you know, obviously there was challenges, but we were just good people, you know, like we were just, you know, we were good tax paying citizens who did all the right things, got A's in school. And so, there was this an, uh, inherent moral compass, which I actually believe we all are born with an inherent moral compass because we're all sparks of creation. And when I saw things going on that didn't align with that, it, it tilted me a little bit. Like, again, I didn't want to go sleeping around with everybody when I was young. I didn't want to go and do those things. Um, and my mum, I remember her saying to me once, it's because of your Christian roots, you know. And I was like, no, I just knew I didn't want to. Like, it's actually simpler than that. I just didn't want to. Um, which makes you a bit uncool. So I didn't really kind of think it was there was anything about it other than that I didn't feel that I had to do what everyone else is doing just because they were doing it. 
And I've tried to raise my kids that way too, is don't just follow the crowd. Like don't be, I don't want them to be a wallflower. I don't want them to be mediocre, but just shine in whatever it is that you're passionate about doing. So I just kind of always had that. But I guess, um, yeah, I wasn't um, in a situation where there was a heap of trauma. So I just kind of lived a pretty normal average life. And then something ignited in me probably about four or five years ago when I started going on my own sort of personal, like, who am I journey, where I actually had the courage to enable the real essence of me to start coming out for the first time. And because I think in society, you're kind of a little bit shamed for for having a moral compass. So you kind of keep it quiet because you're like the prude, you know, if you don't laugh at the dirty jokes, you're like the prude. And so you kind of go, "Uh and then I'm like, man, I actually just let my... I actually let myself down then because that actually wasn't okay. So it's really confronting when you start to spend time unpacking your own behavior and your own um, feels about things, but then try not to tell yourself that just because you have the standing that you're therefore a prude or a party pooper or all of those things. I spend more time alone probably now more than ever so that I can make sure that I process all of that with myself to be comfortable with who I am. Mm. Does that answer your question? Oh, it does. It does. I think you're telling me that, well, I, I heard two things, actually. I, I hear that on the one hand, I also, I hear that, you know, there was genuine goodness in your family and that that is, you know, incredibly important. But I also really liked what you said, that we have it within us anyway, that we are a spark of creation. I love that. And if we are a spark of creation, then we do know what's good and what's wrong. And in fact, you know how psychologists will do endless studies and they're so patient. I've got such respect for psychology, Um, the psychologists who do the research. And they actually did a study on children, young children, very young children, like two, three-year-old children. And they had to do a little task, a bit like monkeys really, but they had to do a little task And then if they did the task, they got a reward, and it might have been a biscuit. I can't remember the detail of it. But then the experimenters did something really quite naughty, um, which is that they started giving more to one child than the other. Mm. So they were doing the same tasks. They'd been receiving the same things. And actually, they've done a similar test with monkeys, and it's the same result. And what actually happened was, actually it wasn't the same result with monkeys, that's an interesting thing, but with the children, what happened was the child that was clearly getting more than the the child standing right next to them, guess what that child did automatically? Gave it to the other child? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. There is an innate sense of justice within every human being because I believe, you know, like you say, we are a spark of creation, however... However someone expresses that, I think that is such a beautiful expression, and we know. And you can't tell me that no matter, you know, no matter how damaged people have been, no matter how much terrible things have happened to them, when they do wrong, I still believe they know it. Deep, deep down, I yeah. believe they know I believe that everybody has a conscience, um, but everybody gets a choice. Like we're in this world of free will. So they they have a conscience. It's, I mean, people say that there are um, people who are a, a bit psychotic that may not have that um, innate ability to connect with other humans, but there, there's not that many of them. I just want to touch on probably one other aspect of it, which to me is a really important thing to talk about. And I, I, I might lose some people here. Um, but being, being brought up exposed to the Christian belief system 
the way that I, um, the way that it affected me in a not great way was always living under guilt, guilt and shame, never good enough, dirty, rotten sinner, but for the grace of God. Um, if you do this, you're a sinner. You know, if you have sex before marriage, you're a sinner. If you, if you do this, you're a sinner. It was, um, cause I, I guess too, I realized later on in life that I'm quite a sensitive empath. So you, you wear that really heavily. And then I, and then later on in my life, when I became a mother, I tell you what, there's nothing quite as, as soul destroying as mother guilt, always the mother guilt, never feeling like you were doing it right. So I actually lived under this massive cloud of guilt that, that I, that I allowed myself to put there. Right. I mean, nobody put that above my head, but it was through the belief systems of what I understood. So what I now believe rightly or wrongly, but it feels right for me is that we are divine sparks of creation and we are perfectly created with a conscience. Our soul is intact and um, we have these things. We have these tools called discernment and intuition and those sort of known as slightly more of the feminine side of our characteristics. We're not dirty, rotten sinners who have to strive and bash our way out of sin. We're, we're perfect and we're enough. Even if I wanted to go do nothing for the rest of my life, I'm still enough because I'm perfectly created. What we choose to bring, what we choose to or what comes into our lives when we haven't had a choice, that all affects our perfect nature and our spirit. But we're not born dirty, rotten sinners. I think this is so important and I believe the church does have a great deal to answer to for for a misrepresentation actually of, of Christ's own message. But I think that the, you know, as a psychotherapist, I'm intrigued and fascinated by the role that our psychological makeup affects our relationship with our divine nature, our spiritual nature, our higher self, whatever language that different people use. And we do all use slightly different languages here. But fundamentally, I think that I'm fascinated by the way in which our personal our personal psychological makeup affects the way we see, obviously, ourselves. It also affects the way we see the bigger issues, the, the enormous issues. You know, we talk about how we see ourselves, how we see other people, and how we see the world. And I think how we see God is often forgotten by the very existential um psychological professionals who don't like to talk too much about spirituality or rigid religion and stuff like that but you know one of the first questions i ask my clients early on in our work together i says how do you perceive spirituality what is your spirituality what language should i use with you to understand and talk spiritual matters because i don't want to impose my my matters on them but at the same time i'm fascinated by the way in which um, so-called churches have literally fostered and created suffering, psychological suffering and guilt um, through a misappropriation of a message that, that teaches fundamentally that we are all forgiven. I mean, the one message of Christianity is that this guy, Jesus, he died, so we're all forgiven. He took that on himself. Now, whether we like someone doing that or believing that he did that or whether you believe that, the core Christian message is that we're all forgiven. It's fundamental. And yet, how many churches have condemned people for their behavior and, as you said, brought upon them such a sense of guilt? 
I know it's it's a really big topic and people don't like talking about it because talking about it isn't being anti anybody it's that we need to talk about it we need to be grown up enough to talk about it I love the way that you ask that question of your clients because that's the kind of question that needs to be asked more because as as someone you know on my journey who's kind of lived with the shame and guilt of well you know being in a church and then leaving because I had my own decisions too for years afterwards whenever I bumped into anybody from church space they they wouldn't say how are you like a normal person they would say what church you going to now and I felt judged and then I knew that they were labeling me as a backslider it was all these labels I knew it because I'd been on the inside of it and so um the way that you ask without judgment like what's your spiritual platform that's much better than going are you a Christian are you a Buddhist because straight away I know that they're putting me in their box like I'm happy with who I am but I know that you're going to put me in a box if I say yes or no and it's a it's a conversation that happens a lot because in this space that we find ourselves in, more and more of the people in this space or everybody that I know knows that this is a spiritual situation that we're in, that it's not just a flesh and blood thing. So that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to fully align with um, the, the person next to you's way of believing about that, but we all definitely know that this is bigger than us and we're just a, we're just a piece of the jigsaw puzzle in it. So yeah, I, it's a it's a really big thing to unpack and I think um, having the conversation about the psychological um, situation that religious institutes put on is is quite removed from spiritual spirituality, and that was part of my awakening was seeing that spirituality and religion were at different ends of the spectrum. And I was actually I am a spiritual being just but just because I don't go to church or call myself a label, it doesn't mean I'm not a spiritual being. I'm fully free now to be a spiritual being without having to subscribe to a particular dogma. It actually, took me a long time to be able to articulate it because mm. articulating it for myself was important, but also articulating in a way that doesn't cause offense to other people who are sitting in the judgment. Like I, you know, and I, I sort of work a lot on my own judgment. Like it's who am I to judge what someone's spiritual situation is? Cause that's their journey. Um, but yeah. then in that situation, why do they need to judge me? Because I have a, a slightly different words used, you know? And actually one example uh, that I just thought of from when you were talking before is um, the word witches, you know, the witches, you know, and, and a lot of Christians would say, oh, witches are bad um, because of how they're portrayed. Well, my new understanding is that um, the witches that were burned at the stake were actually the naturopaths and the healers of the world who were using natural um, healing techniques, using nature to actually help heal. And the system didn't like that. And so they burnt these women women at the stake. And, this, and society allowed that to happen. And it's gone down as history as these crazy women witches. And they're all witches and they're all evil and it's all the occult. And so um, someone had sent me the quote, you know, perhaps instead of looking at the witches they burnt, they should be looking at the people that burnt them. You know, turn it on its head and look at who, who are the terrible people who actually thought that that was a great idea. Mm -hmm. Not just blaming the person for what they supposedly did, because aren't we finding ourselves in that situation again? Yes, and I, no matter how angry I feel towards some of the things that have happened, I still return to the very simple commandment that thou shalt not kill, and that to kill another person is to blemish your very soul. Yeah. And... I feel so angry sometimes about what has been done to humans, to society, to me, to my family, the rifts that have been created right across New Zealand. And I, I would just love to punish somebody, you know. <laughs> I, just, I so would. But at the end of the day, I think the worst punishment that people that have been involved in this can, can have 
is to be locked up with all the other people that did it with them and just, you know, left to each other. I can't think yeah. of a worse a worse punishment to someone than to be left to be around people like themselves. That that to me would be the greatest punishment of all. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. And often our, our own um the worst place to be is in our own head about it. So I would rather they sit and have to live with it in their head um that the truth has been exposed. But yeah, I've always had the saying right from the start that I don't believe that we can get to peace through war. And we all want peace, right? We all want this 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 thing where we all actually see each other as equals in one and oneness. And we can't get to it by continually using violent methods or angry methods. And we don't really know how to do that because um all we've known of our history is that it's a war, it's always a war. And as you unpack the lies that we've been told, all wars are banker wars, and it's actually all for profit, and it was never about the people. And when you talk about that, you know, no, I don't believe that any soul has the right to take the life of another soul. And on top of what we know of the last few years, you know, as you talked, I start thinking about all these poor, um, you know, the people in the military who have been sent out to war to kill people, and this is this whole psychological, you know, it's huge thing in America particularly, because America is built off the back of their military complex. And so you have all these traumatised people, and a lot of them are realising what they were, what they bought into and what they thought they were doing wasn't actually what they were doing. And so they have, they've killed people, thinking that they were doing the right thing or thinking that that was what patriotic was, so that I just think the human condition is really a really low ebb at the moment. And so the only way out of it is for these conversations to happen on a granular basis, for then people to go away and do some, you know, inner work and reach out to other people that help them feel less isolated and just know that we're all on the journey together. You know, I think too, we're, we're in the society where we think that some expert over there is going to have the cure and the answers for us. And that's a big lie. Because it's it's within us and through our experiences and, and our and our vulnerability again, our vulnerability and our courage to be able to own up to our mistakes, own up to um the fact that we got sold a lie and 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 really have the bravery to look at what that was so that we can heal from it. Because we don't heal from it by just running off to get more drugs, get more alcohol, you know, numb it all out. We don't. I love what you said then about how we need to have these conversations at a granular level um, that is so eloquent. And I think questions that we're talking about here are questions that human beings, we're kind of wired to have these conversations. What we're not wired for is what has required hundreds of years of conditioning is that we should be focusing on the material things of life. Mm. And, and I don't think that's, it's certainly not what young children display. Um, you know, the minute someone is upset in a room, a young child immediately notices. Yeah. And if they can, they'll move to that person and they'll just go up and a young child. Whereas adults in the room are trying to avoid looking at that person and trying to do everything other than, than talk about what's really going on. Yeah. And I suppose the reason I do what I do is because, what I do, we talk about what's really going on. And, and I just think that when people are being conditioned and programmed and manipulated and hypnotized and psychologically played with to keep thinking that the solution to their problems lies in things and objects and real estate. New Zealand is the biggest and worst real estate obsessed country I've ever lived in. I am shocked at the real estate conversations going on ever. It's like a drug. It's like an addiction, you know. Yep. 
Yes, yeah, I know I'm going to be interviewing you, but I'm I'm having a bit of a um, rant here. No, I love it. It's just a conversation. That's awesome. Yeah, we see the same things, and it's like, guys, people, this isn't even what matters. You know, it goes back to its connection because when we have true connection, then we can actually you know, we observe other people and we're like, wow, you know, and I think too, like, and I've learned this the hard way. We learn everything the hard way. Being a person who, when someone comes and tells me something, I try and be a fixer. And I've had to explain it to people when I want to share my heart with people and go, I'm not, I'm not asking you to tell me a solution. I just need to share this. Cause I need, you know, like a problem shared is a problem solved. I just need to speak. I just need to feel heard. I just need to feel held. I'm not expecting you to fix it. Don't, don't carry the burden of this for you. It's not your burden to carry. However, I need to share it with you. Cause that's the kind of, that's the beings that we are. And when you, when you can actually show up, you know, the, one of my friends, she said the best thing to me, you know, she's actually does therapy work and stuff, but she says to the person, what is it that you need right now? When they're asking her. And so I've, I've learned to adapt that because I felt that in my body when she said to me, what are you doing right now? Instead of where, then I could say, well, actually what I would really need right now is I really need a good night's sleep. And she'll go, yeah, I can help you to, you know, I can take the kids or whatever. You know, what's the thing that you need right now rather than how can I help? Because when someone says, how can I help? I I would usually be like, oh, no, it's all good. I can, I'm fine. You know, or you might be, you might be asking them to help you with something like I need some money, but you're asking somebody who doesn't have any money and then you're all put in a bind. But if the person who sees the, the pain point can say, what is it that you need right now? Then it's an invitation for the person to be really honest. So, yeah. But it's noticing those things. And like for me, that was profound when someone said it to me. And then it's like, well, that's a tool now that I can pick up and I can use with other people. Yeah. What do you what do you really need as opposed to how can I help? And yeah. of course, if you have to if someone says, How can I help? You uh, immediately you've got to admit that you need help, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a disempowering question rather than an empowering question. Yeah. Yeah, and it what is do you so need- much in the in the small words that we say, isn't it? And in yeah. the intention behind it. Yeah, what do you need? And the other one that I come across quite a lot is um how are you? Are you okay? Yeah. Well, if if you ask if someone is okay, what are they gonna say? Mm. <laughs> Literally, you've asked not to hear how they are, but that's that's a whole other thing. Um listen, I want to just ask you a little bit about what you have found to be the biggest moment of trauma or stress or challenge in your life? I ask everyone this, and I I feel very bad asking it, but I feel like it gives us an insight into how we manage and what we learn from life's downs. You know, we talk about the ups, but what about the downs? And what do we learn from that? Because I think sometimes we grow most when the suffering is at the greatest. Yeah. Yeah, and I want to just thank you for asking that question because I, I listened to your interview with Linda just earlier and it is, it's a really tough question to ask, but I've learned through my personal journey too that that's where the opportunity for growth is. So it's we need to have those discussions. Um, my single biggest trauma in my life, um, is, and it's quite raw, so I've got my tissues here in case I, because it's still not really resolved. And it was when my um, one of my sons started going through behavioral and mental health challenges um and 
what that meant for him and what that meant for me and who that I thought that I was. And as an, as an empath and a mother who lives under guilt, um, you know, the first thing you, I jumped to in my head is, what have I done wrong? What, what, what's my fault about this? This wasn't the plan for our life. This isn't the family that we had. Like, we haven't, I haven't purposely, you know, I've con- I haven't consciously created this. So going through, um, yeah, dealing with mental health issues with a teenager and also getting confronted with the fact that the system isn't there to help. It's actually, it was actually harmful for us in our situation. It may not be like that for everybody, but it, it drew, it, it drove a bigger wedge between us. So as a, as a mum who was balancing most of this on my own, um, and didn't have a big support network around me, I was struggling to find the solution in a terrifying moment where this could be life or death for my child. And I'm so tapped out of resources that I'm reaching out to other resources and what's coming back is it's all my fault and it actually just played right into my deepest wounds. And so you just get totally stripped bare, but you definitely know who you are in those moments. And I remember going through one particularly rough day and I I picture it so clearly just standing in my lounge room going, if I'm going through this and it will just benefit one other person, I'll go through it. Like I could see at the time that whatever it is that was being presented to me was happening for a reason, even though I would do anything to not have it happen to me and my family. Um, I was still able to see it was happening for a reason and good would come of it one day. And it still is unresolved. So that's why I get a bit emotional about it. I'm not able to say that that happened 10 years ago. However, um, it was always, it was also my biggest opportunity for growth. But in that time, on the rare occasion that I did seek help, it was it was impossible for me to go and speak to a counsellor and actually speak about me. I just kept speaking about my child. Um, I couldn't even, I couldn't even detach the situation as being separate from me. And that's when I knew that I was in trouble for myself. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that. And and also, you know, that that description of uh, you know, as a mum, when you, your children are suffering, and I can't think of anything worse really uh, for for a parent. I'm sure there are parents listening who can resonate with this kind of terrible challenge of a situation that can't be fixed so easily. I, I, I guess I'm I'm thinking that what you're describing, there was no quick or easy fix and it's still ongoing and therefore it's still a challenge. Is that right? Yep. And I, and I actually started writing in a diary at the time. And I remember really clearly one of the things that I wrote when I was just so broken was, I don't know whether what I'm going, what we're going through right now is a blip or if it's setting us on an entire different trajectory for the rest of our lives. Like when you're in it, you're like, is this just a hump or is this a fundamental shift? Um, And for for us, it was a a fundamental shift by which there wasn't um, an adequate solution. And so, yeah, it's, you know, you you bring in these children into the world with this pure intention and these perfect, perfect little beings that you just put everything into. And when things go sideways, the first thing that most parents do is blame themselves. Um, and I'd just like to say too, and actually to Linda touched on it in her interview with you, I wonder whether one of the reasons why it happened to me was I needed to be at the coalface of it, knowing who I was, because 
I ran the risk or probably had in the past judged others who had been in that situation as thinking, and I hear other people say, oh, well, it's all in the upbringing. They weren't, they weren't brought up very well. Their parents mustn't have cared. Well, I can tell you right now, I care, and I did, and I raised my kids right, and I ended up going to all sorts of meetings and support groups, and I walked into one, and every parent there got to share their story, and a lot of their kids had gone off the rails really badly or into drugs or whatever, and they were all just mums like me. They were mums that cared enough to show up and that were all scratching their heads going, how'd this happen? So if you're judging someone whose child has gone off the rails, then clearly you haven't gone through it yourself. You know, there's there often are massive circumstances and it's a cycle, but when it isn't, um, don't just judge that person or this, that family or that parent and just assume that it's all happened at home because more and more right now we're in a space where there's these external influences on our children that actually we're not even allowed to know about. Um, you know, um, stories of girls who have had abortions at school and they never, the parents never knew. And all these things, there's many things happening in our society by which the parents are actively being shut off from and are not able to grab access to. So to then turn around and say that that must be a situation that's happened in the home is just ignorance. Mm. I think your description of the forces that are at play relate very closely to the issue of school, yeah. media, governments. And yeah. if we as parents look, even if we don't care for ourselves, if we as parents, or in my case, grandparent, look at what is happening and what pressures are on children as they're growing up and what messages they're being given, I suppose what I'm saying here is you're right. Every parent blames himself and you're right that maybe they shouldn't because there's a lot of other influences going on. Well, and I think too, like influences that we weren't even aware of. And I honestly feel now looking back, cause you do a lot of reflection because I was quite sheltered. I wasn't expect. I mean, I talk now that I'm working in this kid's space, I'm talking a lot to there's a lot of conversations coming in about sexual abuse and all of that stuff. Like that didn't feature in my life. So therefore I was quite naive. And so potentially I didn't prepare my children well enough. Like I had the conversations, but not from learned experience, thank goodness. And so um, you sort of go, well, gosh, again, is it my fault that I didn't prepare them well enough for the onslaught of the horrificness of the situation that they're being raised in once they are out there? Like there's this dance that we do as parents who are consciously raising our children between protecting them from all the horrible things and equipping them for um, walking amongst the horrible things without falling into it. But the next part of that, that I've had to really learn the hard way, because I always wanted my children to have roots and wings, is there's only a certain amount that a parent can assist a child with and teach a child with, because then the child gets to a point in their life where they've got to go and figure it out for themselves. However, I know that I got to the point with my oldest son in particular, where I looked at him and I went, there's nothing more I can teach you. You're going to have to go have to learn this in the, in the, in the school of hard knocks. Because actually it's becoming, a, he was becoming abusive to me. And I was like, I got no, I can't do any more for you. You're going to have to go and figure it out the hard way. Letting a child like that go most terrifying moment of my life. And yet the greatest gift you could give him, think about the gift of self-actualization, autonomy, working things out for himself. And I know for a fact that mums find this harder than dads. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, mums are always a mum, you know, and I mean dads are always a dad, but I mums are always mums. Yeah. And uh I I I really feel for what you're talking about here. And and I, I can feel that this is it's it's a rite of passage as well. It's a very normal and natural rite of passage. We don't have to pathologize it or call it a problem, you know. Um the rite of passage, you know, we talk about empty nest syndrome, uh, and we talk about, you know, parents caring, but caring enough to let go. I can see that you're moved and touched. And what I see is I see a, a mother's love. And how can love be about letting someone go? Yeah. All the terrible things that could happen to them. And the thing I've learned in the last few years is everyone I talk to has the same story. Like a lot of the people, like I call myself, you know, like the people like you and I, the people that are finding each other, um, we're in the trenches here. We're on the front line of creating the new earth. And it's messy and it's uncomfortable and it's uncertain. But there isn't a mother that I have met in the last few years who's on the front line like me, who doesn't have a story like mine. You know, whether their children whether it's been exactly the same or not, but the the level of trauma at which they or or their children have gone through, particularly with their children, whether it's about their, you know, their health or a vaccine injury or whether it's about mental health or um about the gender situation or whatever. Like it's um I actually I actually was sent a quote that, and some people would resonate with this and some people wouldn't, but I 100% did, which was that our children are the angels who were sent here to help us to alchemize our grief into love. And I think that's what's happening with me. And I see it happening in others and we, and we can sit in blame or we can sit in victimhood mentality. And I do that, by the way. I haven't kind of resolved all of that. I've just spent a month doing that. Christmas is really tough for me. But if I if I'm given this situation and I and I don't pick up the tools and do something about it, I've kind of wasted my opportunity here. You know, while this isn't what I desired for my life, it is what it is. And so what am I how can I use this for good? Um, and that's what I find in the people who are out there really making a difference is that they've gone enough on that journey to go, how can I use this situation for good rather than blame, point the finger at other people, sit back and hope that someone's going to come and save us or remain in the victim stance? That's a fundamental shift. Yes. Um, that is, you know, the issue of not being a victim, not being a sort of abusive persecutor, and and also the other role, which is not to disempower people, by rescuing them or in a mother's case holding on to them longer than you need I, I i think about traditional societies and what they do you know when when adulthood is calling and to the children and you know most traditional societies have some ritualistic uh ceremony um they have a they have a rite of passage Mm. that helps everyone know the changes that are happening. But here it's almost invisible. In modern day life, you yeah. wouldn't know there's a difference to someone who has transitioned through any of the seven stages of life, as one writer talked about. 
um, you wouldn't know, but in traditional societies, everybody in the community now knew to talk and treat that child as a man, you yeah. know, everyone changed as they to support that journey we don't yeah. have that support these days so we end yeah. up needing conversations like this to share to go to meetings you know yeah to know you're alone I 100% agree with you and I think we can all learn a lot from going back to looking at these ancient tribal ways and someone had said that to me about one particular you know um thing which was that the the boy the son would actually be taken away and would spend time with the men showing yep. them how to do men's stuff. And then when they came in, the ceremony was actually for the son to greet the mother and they weren't in the mother-son relationship anymore. And thinking about that, not only is that super exciting and empowering for the young man now because he knows that he's a man and he knows he's got good men around him to role model him, but the mother can kind of let it go and go, I've done my bit and I will always love them with a mother's heart, but it's not my job anymore to protect them. They are now equipped to do what they're here to do as an adult. And I that's kind of the fundamentals of how I thought that I was raising my children. I mean, they, they left younger than I wanted them to, but I'm extraordinarily proud of the fact that they're out there in the world at, a, at an age where most kids couldn't. Yeah, you know, my kids did have the equipment and their hearts to know how to, however that, the reasoning for how that happened is, well, I did in the end give them roots and wings. You know, I always wanted to give them roots and wings. And um, and so in my darkest hours, I have to go, well, I did the best that I could with what I had at the time, and it was totally imperfect like everybody's, but if I put all my guilt aside, I can honestly put my hand on my heart and my say, I did the best that I could with the tools that I had at the time, and I have to let it go now, and I have to just trust that if I'm on this incredible journey picking up the tools through the experiences, then so must they be. Yeah. Well, on that wonderful note, Penny Marie, we've run out of time. I could go on with this conversation for, for days, possibly weeks, but um, <laughs> and we're going to hear from you in a minute uh, coming up with your choices for music, which I'm really looking forward to. But thank you, Penny Marie, for sharing what makes you tick, what gets you out of bed in the morning. And I want to really acknowledge your honesty and your bravery and your courage in, in this conversation. It's just been all over your talking and what you've been saying. So thank you so much for being here in the psychotherapist chair with me, Jerry Pives. Penny Marie, thank you so much. Thank you so much. So welcome to the Reflections section of Real People in the Psychotherapist Chair. And I'm Jerry Pives. And as I said, I'm going to be talking about three topics that emerged from Penny Marie's interview. And the first of these is fear. If we think, as Penny does, of fear as a vibration, then I think it's fair to say it seems to rank as a very low vibration as opposed to a vibration that maybe uh, operates from hope or love or spiritual enlightenment. So we can think of emotions, if you like, on a spectrum. And right down there at the most gut-wrenching, physically almost base emotion of humanity is to operate out of fear. It seems to be almost a gut-wrenching sensation. It's a survival reaction. It's a fight or flight 
reaction. And this is where fear is now understood very differently from how it was maybe a hundred years ago. Psychotherapists and healers now think of fear much more in the context of trauma than they do in the simple context of an emotion. And like many powerful emotions, when we experience them, our ability to think rationally or engage at a critical thinking level with our environment is inhibited, quite simply because we now know that the blood leaves the frontal part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, the part where we do a lot of our thinking and indeed the part where a lot of our higher and more evolved activities come from and drops into a sort of a survival, emotional, pain, pleasure kind of part of the brain, the midbrain, the limbic brain, actually to a specific organ called the amygdala. And it is from this amygdala, from this emotional base of reaction, that we're operating probably at one of our most primitive levels, especially when it's in relation to fight or flight, or indeed shutdown, which is the freeze response, the three Fs of fight, flight, or freeze. And when we experience fear, we go into panic or we go into anxiety. And in some cases, we go into anger. Because if you think about the description of someone as being paranoid, they're operating from a fear-based position. And one of the most dangerous people to be around is someone who is extremely paranoid. Because of their paranoia, because they feel threatened by almost anything, they will often lash out. A paranoid personality can actually be a very violent personality, which makes it very unsafe to be around someone who perceives the world almost entirely as a threat. And this can be slightly confusing because someone who, as it were, behaves aggressively or appears violent and looks like an initiator of aggression is actually operating from fear. So fear operates as a base human response. It's something that can enable us to operate without thought. And this explains, I think, the understanding of fear also as a frequency, as a very base low, almost kind of animal frequency. By that, I do not mean any insult to animals, by the way. <laughs> but I just mean an instinctive, non-rational, non-human, non-thinking place. And there you have a slight clue, if those of you are wondering, why is everything around us seemingly designed to stimulate a fear response? the actions of governments, the actions of doctors, the actions of boards of registration, boards of health, the actions of global organizations, the action of global corporations, not to forget the actions, of course, of the media. All of them seem to both want to create fear in us. They also seem to aim to disempower us so that you have this sense of powerlessness and you have fear. And once you start to have that, you have a population that is very easily controllable because 
Once everyone is in panic, the immediate response is to seek and chase after security at any cost. Yes, I'll stay in my house. Yes, I'll believe that the whole world is dropping dead from an imaginary virus, just like the two tailors that walked into a little village and told the emperor that they made such special clothing, nobody could see it. And the emperor brought the con and the rest is history, as they say in the story of the emperor's new clothes. Rather like that, the, the COVID scam, the COVID pandemic came in. And the more the fear got ramped up, police patrolling the streets, making sure no one stepped out of their house for more than the allowable 500 meters. People wanted this. People boasted about their adherence to this, everyone except the politicians, obviously, who were just quite happy to go ahead and break it. So, so what we've got here is we've, we've got an insane situation where a whole population has been controlled by fear. The most primal response of humanity, of course, we're hardwired for survival. So anything that is a threat is going to, as it were, alert us much more quickly than anything that is safety. So whenever we're in a space and we're responding or noticing ourselves reacting from fear, the first thing we have to do is we have to say, am I thinking? Am I operating from a gut-wrenching, primal, animalistic instinct for survival or am I operating from a critical thinking stance? So the first thing about winning this battle against fear is to acknowledge that's what's been triggered. And it may have nothing to do with you or even the intention of the people around you. Of course, the people around you may be triggered. And once you're in an environment, you know, if you put five people in a lift, and four of them are operating from fear, you can guarantee the fifth person will start to feel fear. Which brings us on to the contagion nature. The real contagion is not a COVID virus. The real contagion that we've been going through over these last four years is a specifically and deliberately generated atmosphere of fear. We don't live in an atmosphere, we've been living in a traumasphere where every single operation of government, including the media, which is now just a state of most governments, well, not even of governments, of the people that control the governments, the big money barons, the deletes, as some people call them, a tiny handful of psychotic individuals who think that happiness comes from causing mass suffering on a great scale. Well, that story is yet to fully come out, but it is breaking out like a bunch of boils bursting on the skin of the body politic. The, all over the world, we're hearing this. Aren't we just hearing the, the breakout of this contagion, this false manipulation of information? And for example, one of the most famous people for this generated, orchestrated, global pattern of fear-mongering is Fauci, who now sits in the Senate hearing and says, oh, I can't remember. <laughs> he can't remember manipulating and being part of a group of people manipulating the world into fear. The contagion is fear. So anything that can break that contagion has got to be really wonderful. That's our antidote. That's our vaccine. <laughs> our vaccine is, of course, how do we fight fear? Well, remember, 
The reason why, if you put four, five people in a lift and four of them are vibrating at a resonance and a frequency of fear, the fifth person will start to feel fear is because, I mean, it's a beautiful thing. We are made to be able to tune in to each other. We have empathic nerves. We are almost unable to not tune in to the people around us. And the more important a person around us is, the more we tune in. I had the great pleasure of having a session with a young mother recently with her baby. And it was just absolutely amazing to watch this connection between a young mother and her baby and watching this newborn baby, as it were, attune to the mother and the mother attuned to the baby. Right from birth, we're attuned to understand each other's emotional state. And if you think about that, that's why we can really form long-term relationships. It's why we can form groups. It's how groups actually help each other a great deal. It's as if there's a kind of a swirling around in a group of emotion and caring and connection. And this is profoundly healing. Think of a choir singing together, for example. So my point here is quite simply this. Because of something called mirror neurons, we all have mirror neurons, which means we literally can mirror each other's emotional state. In fact, it's almost impossible not to mirror another person's emotional state. We have to shut down. We have to switch off. We have to be in some way brutalized in order not to be able to feel exactly what someone walking down the street next to us is feeling and not to be able to pick up the atmosphere of the community and not to be able to pick up the atmosphere of the whole society. Indeed, we are tuned in and plugged in not only to each other, but to the whole world. So if you're living as we are in an environment of deliberately manipulated communication to generate fear on so many levels, then what can we do to kick back, fight back? Well, the beautiful thing about this is that if you start generating something other than fear, like compassion, like understanding, like love, like friendship, like harmony, like understanding of the higher purpose in everything going on, if, if we can lift our own vibration out of that fear, then what we're doing is we're inviting everyone's mirror neurons who's around us, including the ones that aren't around us, I suspect, to lift. But the first thing is we've got to know when we're operating from fear. Each one of us will have a slightly different response when we get into the fear response. But fundamentally, it's like a kick in the gut. It's like a sense of panic. It's like a a desire to run, it's like a desire to curl up in a ball, it's like a desire to stick your head under the duvet and just not know about anything, it's like an overwhelm, it can be a multiple amount of feelings, but we all have this link to being able to tune in to a threat. So once we're tuned into a threat, and that'll happen without us noticing, we might hear something, see something, or even, I suspect, just think something because the people around us are all thinking it. So how come, how could we possibly not pick up some of those thoughts? 
This is your body's reaction. Because it's a threat response, it goes straight to the emotions, the amygdala, and the body. So the very first step in fighting back and changing the world, actually, comes from noticing, oh my goodness, there I am. Look, I'm in a state of fight or flight, or I'm shutting down, I don't want to know, don't know what I'm thinking, I'm trancing out, I'm disappearing down a hole. That's the first step, isn't it? And then, of course, the second step in all of this is to then say, am I safe? Look around you. Is the roof falling in? Because if it is, you want to be in fight or flight and you want to get out of that house really quickly, right? (laughs) But if it's a generated, a falsely generated vibration, then you look around you and go, Hmm. I'm okay. Have you got clothing to wear? (laughs) If it's raining, can you reach shelter or put out an umbrella or pull up a hood? Or if you're a true Kiri, just carry on walking in the rain. (laughs) In other words, noticing the physiological state we're in, and then like, oh, right, check out reality. Number one, check out reality. Look around you. Is there a clear and imminent threat? And if not, then you just have to do one simple thing. Take a nice deep breath and breathe out really slowly. The one thing your nervous system knows is that if you're in threat, your breathing is going to be very hyperventilated. It's going to be rapid. But if you take a nice, slow, deep breath and then just breathe out, and breathe out the air until all the air has gone out, so your belly is collapsing back towards your spine and slightly up towards your chest, so that all the air goes out. So you're breathing out extraordinarily. You're not breathing out normally. You're not breathing out panicky. You're going to breathe out extraordinarily. And as I'm talking about this, you can try it. Breathe out as you would normally, and you'll find there's still a couple of liters of air stuck in your lungs. So you can push that last bit out. This is very hard to talk about and demonstrate, (laughs) especially on the radio. All right. But you get the idea. You just breathe out normally. And then instead of breathing in, you push a little bit more air out. And then the reason for that is your next in-breath is going to come nice and big because you've sent all the signals to your body that you're going to breathe out. You've got no air. And then when you breathe in, you imagine that your lungs seat in your belly, not your chest, as the anatomy books say. They must have got it completely wrong. But it's actually in the belly. So when the air comes in, you just imagine a tube running straight down to your belly. So even if you're driving, you've probably got one hand free. You can, as you listen to this, you can literally feel the belly going back towards your spine when you're breathing out and breathing out the last litre or so of air, and then just imagine one single tube bypassing the lungs, going straight down to your belly with your hand on your belly. When you breathe in, you push that belly out and you balloon the belly. It's all about the bee, the belly, the ballooning of the belly to create the Buddha belly, the Buddha with the balloon in the belly. (laughs) You'll never forget that now. now. We're halfway there. You really let yourself breathe in. 
And now the thing to do is to breathe out through your lips as if you're playing a flute to gently restrict and slow down the outbreath. This is an outbreath that is going longer than normal. It's a kind of a very slow, gentle, calm outbreath. So you're letting the outbreath be spacious. And when you breathe in, send it down to the belly and breathe in as fast as you want. Okay, the in-breath doesn't matter at all. The only thing I recommend is you keep one hand on the belly and when you breathe in, push that belly out and let the diaphragm really stretch. All you have to do to convince your nervous system that there's nothing to be frightened of, no saber-toothed tiger about to launch at you. The way you do this is you make the out-breath longer than the in-breath. So if, you, if your in-breath is one, two, three, four seconds, then when the breath turns around, you balloon the belly, and then you just breathe out one, two, three, four, five seconds. If you do it a couple of times, you might find yourself breathing out eight seconds. Doesn't matter exactly. Don't get uptight about the numbers. And just allow yourself to feel the settling in your body, even as you drive. It's better to drive from a calm state than an agitated state. And if you allow yourself to reset your nervous system with a gentle, slow breathing, you'll find that you can start to think again. And if you allow yourself, to think what I call holy thoughts or spiritual thoughts or thoughts of great compassion and love. If you just fill yourself, I mean, no one else can do this for you, by the way. <laughs> you can allow yourself to just fill your heart with love for everybody and everything. It's an amazing and miraculous power that we have, which is to literally fill ourselves with compassion and love. In one second, in one breath, you know, you don't need to go on a 40-day Vipassana meditation to fill your heart with love and soothe your nervous system. I'm not saying they're not great things to go on, by the way. And I could have picked on an Ignatius Loyolan retreat for 40 days or whatever. But what I'm saying here is that it's possible to take control of your state. And your state, your nervous system state is under attack. It has been for the last four years. And if you haven't noticed, God bless you. But you know what? We've been under attack. And so whenever you're feeling the panic and you're around other people, you can just quietly, it doesn't have to be a big show, you can quietly do your breathing, fill yourself with love, and just watch the change in the people around you. And this is the basis of the Intention Project by Lynn McTaggart, where she enables, some of you may know about this, but she enabled groups of people to come together. We do something very similar um, every month on the World Council for Health. I run a meditation once a month, and we just do the breathing as well as a little bit of nervous system soothing. And if people all around the world start doing this, getting together, we literally raise the vibration. And Lynn McTaggart's Intention Experiment is a fantastic book to read up on this. If you want to follow up on anything, read that Intention Experiment. It's absolutely tremendous. And it's quite staggering what was able to be changed. They even removed the pollution from a polluted lake. Would you believe that? So read up Lynn McTaggart, Intention Experiment, if you want to. Come along and visit my monthly 
World Council for Health Mind Group. I'm on the panel there. And once a month, they let me have a meditational spot. It's on a Thursday morning. And if you like this idea and you want to take more control of this, if you go to my website, www.jerrypives.com, and sign up for my newsletter, you'll hear as soon as I'm going to be setting up a weekly group to do this so we can all get together here in New Zealand and across the world. I'm opening it to other people who know about me. And very soon I'm going to be operating this. Now, don't worry about getting flooded by you know promotional materials or newsletters. I started this website a year ago. <laughs> We've got many hundreds of people here. <laughs> and not one newsletter has been sent, so you're not going to get inundated with a whole bunch of meaningless newsletters. So you can just go to www.jerrypies.com. So that's fear. So what was number two? Well, actually, it segues really beautifully from fear into how not to be a victim. And being a victim is a really disempowering place to be. The reality is when we feel a victim, we're utterly and completely disempowered. We can even become disempowered by the people who might be trying to help us. But the simple truth is we're never without our individual power. We might have a strong emotional feeling of helplessness, of hopelessness, not very far away from fear, is it? But it's slightly different. It's got a different color to it, hopeless and helpless. And frustration often is the feeling that goes with being a victim. And of course, we're never really without power. If you're breathing and you're alive, then you have some form of power. Us humans were created, I believe, by a divine being who created us so amazingly that we have the capacity to do both terrible things and wonderful things. We could be a Hitler or a Mozart. The choice is ours. Yeah. What happens with the victim when I feel myself in a victim place is that I'm truly ignoring or discounting or forgetting that I have power. And the truth about it is, I'm generally in a victim state when I'm feeling sad or angry or I'm feeling scared or depressed or anxious. I'm in a bad place. And in that bad place, it's almost as if we take our capacity for thinking and we just throw it over our shoulder and give up on our own ability to solve our problems. So how do you stop being a victim? where well, you grab hold of that capacity to think and bring it back and think about what's going on. However, the catch with being a victim is that stepping out of being a victim is not the same as toughing it out or just upping your brave. What I'm really talking about here is we don't just buy into the Superman or the Superwoman costume, all right? That's not how you stop being a victim toughing it out, smashing it. That kind of behavior actually is a behavior that is in itself a fear response. It's a fear of being mushy, a fear of being soft, a fear of being vulnerable. And that's the key that we need to understand about stepping out of becoming a victim. We've got to know 
why we're feeling that way. We've got to know what we're feeling. Forget the why. We just have to notice how I'm feeling. I'm probably feeling hurt. I'm probably feeling cheated. I'm probably feeling let down. Or a whole range of feelings might be going on for me. But just as in our dealing with fear, so too in our dealing with finding ourselves feeling in a victim place, we need to own what we're feeling. And once again, the first thing we've got to do around ceasing to play the victim is to self-soothe those feelings. Sometimes it's just taking five minutes and sitting down and putting your hand on your heart, closing your eyes, and just saying, how am I? What's really going on here? You kind of need to self-parent. Imagine a parent with a young child. What's going on, darling? Here, come and let me hold you. Tell mommy, tell daddy, what's going on? We've got to do that with ourselves if we're grown up. And that means we need to just, as it were, find it in ourselves. Find that higher part, that wiser part, that, you know, in my case, 66-year-old part. Yeah, Maybe you're not that old. Maybe you're 24. But you've still got 24 years of life experience. And what can you bring to that condition? Don't solve it. Don't fix it. Don't take it away. Just acknowledge it. And when you acknowledge that state, you might cry a little bit. You might shake a little bit. You might clench your fists a little bit because of your frustration. But whatever it is, allow, 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 and do that same breathing I just described to you. That same breathing to get out of fear, that elongated out-breath breathing. Just do that breathing whilst acknowledging. And what you'll find is that the state of emotion in time will slowly ebb out. You, you cannot keep that emotion going for very long. We can try, and good luck to you, but you'll find that it naturally settles. It's as if a part of you needs to speak. A part of you just has to have a little cry. A part of you just has to shake a little bit from fear. A part of you just has to clench those fists and grit the teeth and then release again, just so the part of you can let you know how you are. And when you've done that, do not immediately try and think about or solve your situation. Ride a few more breaths in a calm state. So once the emotion passes, as it will, then you just continue to breathe in a calm state. Now, you've reclaimed your capacity to think. And if you were listening in the first part of this reflection, you'll remember that I said the blood flows away from the prefrontal cortex when we've got some powerful emotions going on. Well, deal with the emotions, and guess what? The blood flows back to the prefrontal cortex, and you'll be able to think again. And if your problem is genuinely challenging, and it is hard for you to do alone, then reach out to a friend and say, do you know, I'd really like to talk to you about what's happened to me. I'd really like to share with you some of my feelings, but I don't want you to think for me. I want you to listen, and I want you to encourage me to think. 
One of the things about the victim is we throw away our power to think. And very often friends with the best will in the world say, why don't you? Why don't you do this? Why don't you try this? And because we're not ready yet, or we don't want to have someone else tell us what to do, we go, yes, but, yes, but, yes, but. So you get this drama cycle called, why don't you? Yes, but. You've probably seen that game around you a fair amount of time. And by the way, this is a game written about in a wonderful book called Games People Play by Eric Byrne. Why don't you? Yes, but. Instead, what you say to someone is, I'm having a tough time right now. I'd love you to listen to me and just hear me out and help me to think my way out of this problem. Now, some friends are going to give advice, but you don't have to take it. At the end of the day, take back your thinking, take back your feelings, allow yourself to feel your feelings, and take some time to think this out. Talk to several people. In my therapy groups, sometimes someone presents a problem, and instead of going, oh, I'm in such a bad place, and then waiting for everyone to jump in and rescue, because every victim invites a rescuer, and instead of getting the whole group to a rescue, if they do, I catch them short. What I say to you is, what would you like to do about this? What do you want from us? What do you want from me? And by the way, if someone you know is playing the victim, you can say, what do you need from me? What do you want from me? Penny Marie talks about what do you want or what do you need? And it's kind of interesting. But the idea is the same, that you're allowing someone to take charge of what they're asking for. If you're in a victim place, you can't ask for anything. You can kind of beg, you can manipulate, you can hope, but you don't actually ask for something. And if you're in your power and if you're in your strength, then you can ask for it. And so I say, what would you like from the group? And very often, because it's become a habit in these groups, someone says, I want to do a circle, a group think circle, we call it. And what happens is each member of the group gives their ideas. Well, I think you should get up earlier in the morning and pull your socks up. You know, uh, I think you should ditch the boss, uh, whatever. And like five or six people give their opinion, which is fine. In fact, they might have exactly the right answer. And then I return to the person and say, which of these solutions do you choose for yourself? Can you hear the power in that? So do not discount your ability to think, even though you're feeling upset. But first you must allow the feelings, then you must deal with the feelings with soothing, and then you talk out and think out your problems, and you'll find the answers. And if you do need to seek help from someone, it might be um, that you have something very specific to do, there are just a few questions you can ask yourself about that. Five really important questions. Can I do it on my own? If I'm asking someone, can they say no? Is it okay for them to say no? Am I asking the right person? Is now the right time? Will this help me to be more powerful and more independent and sort my own problems out in the future? Classy example of that would be sending water bottles to a country where there's no water or sending a team out to teach them how to dig wells so they've got their own water. The second option enables them to become independent and autonomous. So there you go. The Jerry Pives trademarked method, how not to become a victim. Acknowledge your feelings, soothe your feelings, then start to think. And if you need to reach out, ask those five 
questions. And finally, in my reflections for today, we move on to parenting. And there was much talk with Penny Marie about how we let go, how we allow ourselves as parents to let go of children and how tough that can be for parents. Listen, it's tough for the kids too. Don't get me wrong on that one. But it's tough for the parents because the parents have been invested in that caring role for a very long time. And I just wanted to close these reflections with a couple of beautiful readings. And this is a poem by the Sufi writer Khalil Gibran. On children, have a listen to this. Your children are not your children. They are the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but not from you. And though they are with you, yet they belong to no one. You may give them your love, but not your thoughts, for they have their own thoughts. You may house their bodies, but not their souls, for their souls dwell in the house of tomorrow, which you cannot visit, not even in your dreams. You may strive to be like them, but seek not to make them like you. For life goes not backwards, nor tarries with yesterday. You are the bows from which your children as living arrows are sent forth. The archer sees the mark upon the path of the infinite, and he bends you with his might, that his arrows may go swift and far. Let your bending in the archer's hand be for gladness, for even as he loves the arrow that flies, so he loves also the bow that is stable. Khalil Gibran on children. And someone else wrote, a commentator wrote on this, Khalil Gibran said that the parents are like a bow and the children are like arrows. The more the bow bends and stretches, the further the arrow flies. I fly, not because I am special, but because they stretched for me. So that's looking at it from the child's point of view. I fly, not because I am special. They fly because the parents stretched and bent for them. So those are my last two reflections on the joys and challenges of parenting, and particularly that stage of parenting where we have to let go. So that's my reflections for today. I hope you've enjoyed them. I've enjoyed having the opportunity to share them with you. With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom by simply visiting www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate to make a difference today.